Last time I was out in California working, I spent time with uh, three patients that touched my heart. They always touch my heart every time I'm out there. There was a 53-year-old lady, mother of uh, four kids, who uh, passed away right in front of my eyes without knowing the Lord. It was too late when I got there. There was also a young mother with a two-year-old child who had a congenital heart disease who saw her little two-year-old turn black and blue from, for all the medical people, epinephrine and levofed and adrenaline that they had given the kid because all his organs had shut down. And uh, we had to say goodbye to that kid. Uh, all the family was gathered around the room and uh, you should have seen the mother's face. It was a very solemn time. And I thought to myself, does she know Christ? You know, did the baby, did the parents know Christ? And then lastly, I was working and they rushed in a 14-year-old girl who had been at, at a friend's house spending the night. And when she was spending the night, she had a big headache. She passed out. They brought her in. They were doing CPR on her. They, they got her back. They placed her on this machine called ECMO. She had had a AV malformation in the back of her head. Her arteries and veins, without her knowing it, were mixed up in the back of her head, and, and they blew, little to her knowledge. And she died with her family around her. Unfortunately, the family didn't want to give up organs, which is a whole other subject. It was at those times that I thought to myself, what would I say? to these families if I had another chance. And before I start, I'd like to pray because it's a very solemn, I don't know when I'm gonna see you again, you know? You just never know. I, I know this is the way it happens. You just never know. So I invite you, with you, to, invite you to pray with me. Father, I come in your presence recognizing that you have a lot to say I might just get one chance at it. What would you have me say, Lord? I ask you to intervene and that I can hide behind the cross and you can speak. Lord, you've done so much for me. What can I say to those that are my friends, the kids, the parents, the adults? Speak through me, Lord. Soften their hearts and may your Holy Spirit do a work that I could never do is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, the American dream. The American dream. I'm gonna to talk to you about the American dream. It's a very important subject. And how does it go with the opening song, the children's story, thank you, my wife. What else do I need to say after my wife does that? But there's a lot because the American dream means a lot to me and to a lot of us. Do a lot of us here maybe have experienced the American dream? It says the American dream is a set of ideals in which freedom includes the opportunity to, for prosperity and success, as well as an upward social mobility for a family and children, regardless of where you were born or what class you were born into, achieved through hard work in a society with few barriers. 
supposed to work, but it's not working. I just t touched it over here. Does anybody recognize? I'm going to give you three stories. One introductory story. That's the gist. Then I'm going to give you a longer story. And then I'm going to give you two little stories at the end. So you know where we're going. Does anybody recognize this? The American dream. See, it's not working. So I'm going to have to hold my iPad in my hand. Does anybody recognize this? That's right. A few of you here know what that is. That's right. That, my friends, is Havana Harbor. Now, what does Havana Harbor have anything to do with the American dream? Well, I'm going to tell you why. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Back in, uh, on this day, 122 years ago, this ship rolled into town in the Havana Harbor, the USS Maine. And does anybody remember what, what, what happened? On that day, President McKinley said, I'm going to send the USS Maine to Havana because we're having a conflict and there was the Spanish-American War and we're going to send reinforcements to help the Cubans. And on that day, that ship sat in that harbor. Okay? And this is what happened. Unbeknownst to everybody, there was an explosion on that ship. Nobody knows what happened. But the USS Maine went down. And my friends, that was the start of the Spanish-American War. Americans didn't take it lightly. And they acted upon it. And for a short period of time, over months, the Americans went to war. And because of that war, a lot of the Pacific Islands that were Spaniard territories, Guam, Philippines, Puerto Rico, Cuba, were now surrendered. And, but it was during this time of the Spanish-American War that something very special happened. The country was in turmoil. The country was in turmoil, and there was a couple named Isaiah and Laura Moore, Americans. And it was right after the war that this couple right here decided, I want to go and I want to share the gospel with the people of Cuba. And these people were self-supporting. That means that they, they paid their own way. God had done so much for them in their lives that they took the time and their own money to go across overseas as missionaries and come to the people of Cuba. Isaiah and Laura Moore. And that is because they gave up their American dream. You see, if they would have stayed in the States, they could have had, that was the Industrial Revolution. Things were happening. People were gaining wealth. But they decided to put aside their personal interest to go and to serve. And they wanted to serve God's dream, not just their own dreams. And so they sacrificed. And they went to Cuba early in the 1900s. They met a man. This is a man right here. His name is Juan Antonio Rubio. Juan Antonio Rubio was a businessman, a well-to-do businessman. And this couple, Laura and Isaiah, met with this man, and they studied with this man. This man took the gospel to heart, 
And he rode around Cuba on this horse with a satchel from town to town, sharing the gospel with the Cubans that never heard of Jesus. We owe a lot to Isaiah and Laura Moore. This was the first uh, Adventist, one of the first Adventists in Cuba in the early 1900s, 1904, 1906. Here he is at 107, Juan Antonio Rubio. He lived because he was faithful to the Lord. God blessed him, and he was 107 years old when he passed away. You see, Juan Antonio Rubio was my great-grandfather. And my great-grandfather decided to pass it on to my grandfather, Miguel Angel Batista. Miguel Angel Batista took it to heart, the gospel, and he passed it on to my mother, my mother Adelvis, who's here, who's 84 today. And my mother was so dedicated that she went through a lot during the Cuban Revolution, but she remained faithful to God in communism, and she made sure she passed that on to me. And here I am, you know, sharing the gospel. Started with my great-grandfather, went to my grandfather, my mother, and the trickle effect of what they had done down to me, now I'm sharing the gospel. Not only did I share the gospel, but I passed it on to my kids. And my daughter, Christy, is here, back in Cuba, you know, having an evangelistic series, sharing the gospel. Amen. And my son, not that I'm putting a plug in for this, you know, but my son uh, spent some time doing corporate work, and now he's going to go preach an evangelistic series in the Dominican Republic. And it's gone from generation to generation. It's been passed on. As a matter of fact, today, this week, my son said something very special to me. My son decided to change his major. He says that uh, God has impressed him, and he wants to do ministry. So uh, he is, uh, I'm very proud of him. And as you can see, from Laura, from my grand- great-grandfather, it was passed on. And uh, my uncle is a pastor. Uh, he helped a lot of people uh, get to know Christ. My dad was a great uh, soul winner also. And uh, one person giving up their American dream and putting Christ first and living that dream can have such an effect down the road. But I want to now take time and read the story that we spoke about. But I'm not going to take too much time to read it because we read it earlier. But I, I want to read, let's skip down to verse 11 and open your Bibles to John chapter 4, verse 11. Uh, let's, let's go, I'm going to start reading verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew asked a drink of, from me? a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said unto her, whoever drinks of this water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never be thirsty again. But the water that I shall give him will be in him a fountain springing up into everlasting life. You see, Jesus, notice something very carefully what Jesus says. Jesus didn't say that the water you're drinking is bad water. He says, the water that I'm going to offer you 
is eternal water. And he didn't, he didn't come down on her because the water that she was drinking from, hey, Jacob had drank from that well. It was good water. But it was a water that would leave you thirsty again. And so today I want to share with you a modern day parable of this story and how it applies to us. I want to take you back to the country of Cuba again. Surprise, surprise. And this starts back in the Cuban Revolution when Fidel Castro took over. He took over, the country went through a lot of turmoil, and there was a lot of heartache and persecution. And back in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of Cubans fled the island. They fled the island looking for freedom. Freedom that the United States of America offered the greatest country in the world, of who today I am a citizen. There was a very important poet, a Cuban poet named Jose Marti. And he said these words, you are a citizen not of where you were born, but where you can achieve your dreams. And that's, that's, that's my story. Here, I wanna share something with you. Here's a little teddy bear. See, in this teddy bear, in Cuba, you are allowed one toy a year. And this is, this is all we had. When we came off the plane, each one of us had a, a teddy bear. This is a Russian teddy bear that was bought at a state store. Very appropriate, Russian teddy bear, you know? And uh, this teddy bear, you can see me here, and I'm wanting my big brother's teddy bear. Very ambitious that I was, you know? I had my teddy bear next to me, but I wanted my brother's bigger teddy bear. A story, there's a story in that. You see, because I knew what it was like to have nothing. And when I came to this country, we wanted to achieve the American dream. This is all we had when we came off the plane. And here's my happy family at the beach. One happy family at the beach. Those are the days, the good days of living the American dream. But when I was about 10 years old, tragedy struck our house. And my father, who had been a tremendous soul winner for Christ, decided to move on with a woman that was about 10 years younger than my mother and left the house. A tragedy that would affect me, but would be a blessing to me in disguise. Because God can turn everything good, everything bad for good. So I spent a lot of time. My mother um, had to find a job. You know, she was college educated. She, she never thought she was going to have to work. She was married, you know, and she never thought she was going to have to work. But she went, I remember we had a Volkswagen Bug, orange Volkswagen Bug with black vinyl seats, four-speed. And she learned to drive that four-speed four Volkswagen Bug because she had to go to work. And she worked to work in the factories in Hialeah, Florida. And she went to work every day for long hours. And she spent a lot of time working in the factories. And then I had some time off and I watched a lot of TV. And that TV, you know, affected me. Because what you watch is almost what you become. And the American dream was presented to me of what was really important, what I wanted to have. During that time, 
we struggled. And even though my mother worked, she made a measly $2 an hour at the factory. And I remember being at the grocery store for the first time. I was about 10 or 11 at the checkout counter. And I saw my mother whip out those coupons. I said, Mom, what is that? You know, money doesn't look like normal money. And I'll never forget it when I really understood what it really meant. We were broke. I said, boy, it really burned me. I said, no, Mom, we're going to make it. And so I had a really big desire to want to make it, to want to make the American dream. And so I would do whatever I could. And at 13, I started working. And all I knew was one thing. It was passed on to me. It was cars. And the opportunity to buy a car, one of my neighbor's cars, that's it, Chevy Impala, for $50. <laughs> and I wanted to hustle. I wanted to make money. And so I took that Chevy Impala, and I worked on it a little bit, and put a little gas down the carburetor, jump-started it, and I got it running, and I sold this to my brother Dennis, who's here, for $200. <laughs> but Dennis, Dennis is my brother, so he sold this to my neighbor for 400 <laughs> And at a young age of 13 or 14, I started buying and selling cars. And I'm going to have to spend some time on this, because I want you to understand how deep it goes. And at 13 or 14, I was starting to buy and sell cars because that was the means by which we could provide. I remember when I made a little bit of money, I went to the flea market and I bought our air conditioning for my mother's bedroom. Wow, I thought we had hit it big. <laughs> it was really meaningful to me. I really wanted to succeed. And so I started buying and selling cars because that's what I knew how to do. And by the age of 15, I had probably gone through 30 or 40 cars. It, God was blessing. I just thought it, he was. And I would have seven or eight cars in my driveway. I was a kid. I didn't even have a driver's license yet. <laughs> and during that time, I learned how to work on cars. And I had my friend Paul here. Paul? He's in the back right there. He owns a body shop here in town. And that American dream reminds me a lot of Paul because Paul also immigrated to this country and his family is working really hard to make it. And I'm so proud of him. Every time I see him, it just reminds me of my dream. And he works on cars. And I was working on cars. I was starting to work on cars and do a little bit of a body shop at home. And my brother Dennis would be the, he'd do the body work and I'd be the painter, you know? And uh, we started buying and selling cars, and people from the church, would, they knew we were poor, and they'd try to help us out. And we started painting cars. And we started painting more cars and doing a little business and getting ahead with cars. It's right there in my front driveway. That's orange paint at the bottom on, on the concrete. That was where we were working. And we started doing more cars. And we were doing a business and getting ahead. And as you can see, we were doing pretty good paint jobs as a satisfied customer. You know, and we were doing well. And I, I bought my first Trans Am, you know, when I was a young kid. I was 16 years old. And I bought my Trans Am. Wow, the American dream. I had arrived. I was driving to high school in a Trans Am, coming from nowhere. But not only that, I wanted more because I was ambitious. Remember the teddy bear? 
I wanted my brother's teddy bear. I wanted to have the cool, this car came out in a movie and it was the hottest car back then. It was called the Plymouth Cuda for my friend Eugene Smith who's watching online right now, who's the number one Mopar guru in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He understands that that car is a very valuable car. And to have a 440 with three carburetors in the top at the age of 16 to drive that would have been a dream for anybody. And I wanted that and I got it. I had me a 71 446 Bakuda. Today that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars almost. And then I not only wanted that, but I said, hey, that, that car is good, but you know, I, want a, I want a race car. So I went and I bought a 68 Barracuda Formula S with a Hemi in it, 426 Hemi. The Hemi is the king of all engines ever raced. And I bought one of those, and I had one in my driveway. But I, but I wasn't satisfied. But I was still hungry. I wanted more. But I remembered there was one car that broke the 200 mile per hour barrier. The first car in history at NASCAR to break the 200 mile per hour, it was Richard Petty, the king. The king himself, Richard Petty, broke 200 miles per hour in that car right there, Plymouth, Dodge Daytona, Plymouth Superbird. And guess what? If you're ambitious, what do you want? If you want the American dream, you want one of those, right? There I am at 17. I had the car, it was unbelievable I would have that in high school. But I, I thought, what else could you want? I was at the top, and yet it wasn't enough. See, these cars, I'll just give you an idea. Today they sell for you know, a lot of money. Some of them do, the special ones. That one went for three million. Then a movie came out called Smoking the Bandit. And you know, I, I, I watched movies back then. And boy, I tell you, he was my role model. I wanted a Trans Am. So what do you think happened? I had to have me a Trans Am, right? And there it is, a Trans Am, because I wanted to have what I thought was the best. I wanted to be cool, like the movie stars. I wanted to have what people have and what really brings happiness. Another movie came out, show came out, Doug Nash Bridges, you know, Don Johnson, the hottest thing since sliced bread, and he was cool. And he had this car he was driving, and it was called a Hemi-Cuda. Yeah, a Hemi-Cuda is called the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail of muscle cars. And it says here, it's the crown jewel of muscle cars. And for those of you who don't know, they only built a few of these, and they're very, very valuable in society today. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to have a 71 426 Hemi Cuda, because that would have been the top. If I had that, I'd really be happy. I said to myself, and there I am. I'm gonna build my own, because I couldn't afford it, <laughs> right? And so I took one in pieces, and I started building it. I spent about a year building that car from the ground up. You see, I spent a year building this car and my daughter Christy had been born. And I spent a whole year invested in this car. And this is where the turning point started happening in my life. When I was working on this car, I would wake up in the morning sometimes, even though my mother had been very gracious and good to me and taught me all God's things and I loved God. And I was active in church actually. But I would rather pick up a Mopar Muscle magazine 
than I would a, a Bible. And I knew something wasn't right. God was speaking to me that my love for cars and my ambition was starting to take the place of God and had become an idol. And at that time, I really started thinking deeper about the subject and, and, and asking God, you know, okay, take it away from me, you know? But I loved it. I mean, I loved it more than I did the Bible. But yet I was in church. Can anybody here relate to something that, that they really, really love, you know? I mean, we come to church all the time, but you, know, you might have something that you love in your life, right? That uh, for me, it was cars, right? But for some of you, it might be something else, something that's caught your attention, something that has captivated your heart very innocently. It can start very simple, but it can captivate you. Here's my wife on this 71 Hemi Cuda, 70 Hemi Cuda convertible. Restored it from the ground up. As a matter of fact, I had two of them. That one there sold for over six figures. You know, made a lot of dinero on that, you know? And I built it just the way I wanted it, red on red with a shaker hood, elastomeric bumpers. It was what I would just, what I, if I had this, I would never want anything else. I thought that to myself, you know? I said, okay, now I've really arrived. This is it, this one's really it because this will quench my thirst. But then, you know, Magnum PI came out, <laughs> you know? And I thought to myself, well, hey, you know, Magnum, he's a pretty cool dude. I said, I really like that red car he had. So then I had to have me one, right? I had a red Ferrari for a while. I used to drive that here to the Spanish church. I thought once I get that car, you know, I'm set. I'll never need anything else again. I remember my coworker Joe right here. I used to drive that to Erlanger. Not only that, but the Ferrari came out, that, that's pretty good. But when the Acura NXX came out, the car after it is the Japanese Ferrari. I thought that one is even better. And I had two of those in my garage. I had the Ferrari and NSX at the same time in my garage, at the pinnacle of my addiction. I thought, what else could you want? What else could you want? How about you in your life? You know, sometimes you're, you want something more and you want more, you know? It just never does it. I said, well, you know what? Those, those modern cars are pretty cool, but I'm gonna go back to my roots. I'm gonna go back to what I like, old school, you know, my era. And I had a blown supercharged AAR Cuda. I remember my wife drove that to work one day when she lost her keys. That was quite the sight. <laughs> but that, that, I thought that would do it, but it didn't do it. I was empty, it would rock the ground. I thought this is gonna, I could feel the vibrations when I drove it. This is the car that makes me feel. I would need nothing else after I drive this car. And then I said, well, you know what? My father started at a Porsche dealership in Riverside, California, when we came to this country. And I said, you know, maybe I should just go back to my roots and go with a Porsche. I went on to have a Porsche, an old classic Porsche. Over time, I would have seven of them. I'm just showing you the addiction, how it works. Because I have a point here. I said, well, you know, that's old stuff. I want to go modern, something practical. I said, I want to have a 500 horsepower GT500 Mustang. That'll do it. Right? I said, no. I said, wait one second. There's another car called the King of the Hill. It was the first car ever in history to do 175 miles per hour for 24 hours straight. It's called the Corvette ZR1. They used to sell, it wasn't a regular Corvette, you sell for 100,000. People pay 40,000 over sticker price to have one of those. 
And there it was in my driveway, along with a whole bunch of other little collector cars. When Satan puts that carrot out in front of you, you're chasing the end of the rainbow, looking for the next hit. I know. I get it. And over time, I would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars. Nobody would believe me. But never, never find found satisfaction. As a matter of fact, when you really are addicted to something and something becomes your idol, what do you do? You talk about it and you pass it on to the people that you, you love, right? And I passed it on to my daughter, my daughter Christy here today who did the offering call. Here she is at a young age working and down the road, I, I taught her so well, she, she changed the whole front end on a car one time when I was out working somewhere in some other state. She was good because I had passed on to her my addiction. I was trying to pass it on to her, my love. How simple it can be, you know? Sometimes things we pass on to our kids, not only did I pass it on to her, but I passed it on to my son, Michael. And I passed it on to my daughter, Elizabeth. And I passed it on to my daughter, Grace. I wanted them to learn the drink from the well that I was drinking. The water that I was drinking was that water that Jacob had drunk from, that you would be thirsty again. I was brokenhearted. At the end of all that, I just, I thought to myself, you know, I, I, was, I was lost. I was living in fear because I realized that it had taken over my life and I didn't have a way out. I was addicted. I'm going to go back a little bit because I want to touch all the bases here so no rock is left unturned and talk a little bit about my youth. But I won't talk about it today because I won't talk about relationships in my youth because I could talk a lot about relationships. But I'm not going to because if I did, I'd be walking out in a body bag. And so I'm going to pass on the subject of relationships. But I didn't find satisfaction there. And I was empty. Always looking for the next thing. You know, something that would really make you feel you would, wouldn't be thirsty again. So I said, maybe what I'll do it now is education. So after I graduated high school, I decided to go to college. And I went to college. And I studied and I studied and I studied. And I said, I want more and more. I want to, you know, get more, make more money and do more. And I went through four colleges and four different college degrees. And I, I said, this is it. Now I've arrived. Education is the secret to happiness. And I remember when I graduated and I got my first job at Mount Sinai Medical Center. And I worked really hard that year. And I know this is relative. You know, for me, a Cuban refugee, knowing where I came from, to make six figures in my first year coming out of school, what more could I want? I worked really, really hard, twice as hard as my other coworkers. And yet, I was empty. I was brokenhearted. But I said, you know what, when I graduated and got all that money, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to buy myself a Porsche. I graduated college, had all that education, and I bought myself a gold Porsche. And I, no, no, I don't like gold. I'm going to buy a blue Porsche, a black Porsche. And I bought another blue, blue Porsche, and I was empty. Education, girls, cars, I was as empty as can be. 
And I had come to a crossroads in my life where I said, now what? So then when I was at Mount Sinai, I met a beautiful young lady. And as a matter of fact, I met her on the fourth floor of Mount Sinai. <laughs> and someday I'll tell you how, how uh, we shared the, the commandments with her, you know, on the fourth floor of Mount Sinai. And I'd like her to share, the, I'd, I'd like my wife to share the story of, uh, she's got a really good story. Maybe someday she'll share it. And I thought, this is it. A beautiful woman, not only just beautiful, but she was a doctor. <laughs> I thought, what more could you want? Cars, money, education, girls, you know, what more could I want? And you know what? I was empty. I was searching deep down inside. Because I was religious, but I was missing something. I said, you know what I need? I need the American dream. I said, I'm moving on up. And I bought a house in a fancy subdivision. A gated community with really tall ceilings and a nice pool. And I thought, this is going to be it. It wouldn't do it, no matter what. I remember I had to cut the grass and I had to compete with the neighbors, like Disney World grass. You know, boy, I hated that, you know? <laughs> and I had to compete. It was horrible. And just, I, I just I should be happy. I should be happy. But I wasn't. I was empty. And I had run to the end of the rainbow, chasing the American dream as a Cuban refugee who had come from a country where all I had, and all we had, we could barely have scarcity in food, and all we had was one toy. And the devil had sold me a bag of lies that if I chase after the things that you love, the things that he puts in front of you, you will find real meaning to life. And I was coming up empty. As a matter of fact, I was really, really dry. I was so empty. And it says, but those who drink the water I will give will never be thirsty again. And I reached out to God. i never forget it. I asked God from the bottom of my heart, Lord, I, I need you. Because I realize that all the things that I'm trying out are leaving me empty. So I invited God into my heart. And to make himself real. And God answered my prayer. I met a man. I met a missionary man driving this Honda CRX. Actually, the CRX was $400. I know this, because I sold it to him. And the, man, <laughs> and the man was a missionary. The man was a missionary who was traveling the world, who had nothing, lived in a, a really rough home worth nothing, and had a car that was $400. And this had, man had something that I didn't have. He had God in his heart. He had tasted something that no car, no education, no woman, no house, nothing could do. I said, Lord, I want what he has. You know, so I prayed to God. I prayed to God to help me break out of those shackles of slavery to things that the devil had sold me. And in the middle of all that, my life started changing. God was knocking at the door of my heart. There are many of you here today who come to church looking good. 
I used to come to church looking really good. I was actually very involved in church. But deep down inside, you know, I was really struggling. And maybe some of you are struggling through some type of, something that you really love. Something that you love that's, that's like kudzu, just growing and growing and growing, and you don't know how to stop it. But when we come to God, you know, and we open, unlock the door, God wants to come in. And he wants to dine with us. And he wants to give us that water that will never thirst again. So I went from living in Emerald Valley. Miraculously, I ended up in Eden Valley. <laughs> and for those of you who know Eden Valley, I'm a car guy. You have to drive through miles of dirt roads to get to your house. And we lived in a house that was about 1,000 square feet. Our family of six. No air conditioning. No nothing. And it was the happiest year of our lives. God was taking our life. And there, at that place, there was a lot of missionaries. And there were people that were, had given up their traditional jobs and wanted to serve the Lord. And I started tasting what it was like, you know, to put God first in my life. And God was changing my heart slowly. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who seeks refuge in him. And so I, I took that knowledge, and, and I said, okay, I'm going to take my love for cars, and I'm, an, I'm not going to give it up, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dedicate it to the Lord. <laughs> so I opened up a car business, right, called Consumer First Automotive, putting people first. Boy, but I loved cars. I said, well, maybe if I just take my cherished idol, and I, I, I just, you know, do something good with it, you know, I can keep on with my cherished idol, you know? And I did, it went well. My brother Dennis and I, we had a successful car business uh, while I was working at Erlanger, my coworker Joe there. You know, I know he's on to me about my mind being somewhere else, but uh, I was really dedicated to that. And uh, it went well, but I was empty. As a matter of fact, during that time I prayed to God and I said, Lord, I can't fix my addiction. Everything I've tried in my own way, I can't fix it. I said, Lord, you're going to have to take, you have to step in and save me from myself. I knew that my eternal life was at stake. And I reached out to God and I begged to God, Lord, I can't do it. No matter how much I try, I can't break this addiction. I can't break this thing that started off so simple with a natural way just to want to make a living, just to get ahead and had to overcome my life. And I pleaded with God. I said, Lord, I surrender. And the Lord miraculously, I would take my cars in to get them serviced, and I had a ding on one door. The dent wizard would come and fix the ding. And instead of it taking one day like they promised, it would take three weeks. And if I wanted to get a seat reupholstered, instead of taking a week like the guy said, it would take six months. I remember I took a car next door to Paul over there. I had a pickup truck I was working on. And the guy said, it's called Express Paint. Next door to where Paul's body shop is at. And the guy said, it'll take a week. And it took a year sitting there. And all of a sudden, every transaction that I did was really hurting. Was really hurting. Like, I started to hate cars. Everything that I touched was bad. I said, Lord, <laughs> this is painful, you know? But instead of wanting to be involved in cars, I started to hate cars. And hate the greediness of cars. Everybody needs transportation. Everybody needs a decent car to go back and forth to work. But the Lord was taking what I loved and changing my heart only when I gave him the keys to my heart. 
During that time, I started tasting the Lord and I started getting involved in mission work with my job. And I joined the International Children's Heart Foundation. I started going out and doing outreach. And as I was doing outreach and I was reaching out to other people, I started finding happiness and thinking about others instead of thinking about myself. Not only that, but we, we, we took a trip to India. And, and as we're, this is, this is a little bit out of, out of time frame here, but I started realizing that in serving others, you really found happiness. In living for something greater than yourself, do you really find satisfaction? So here I am. I thought I would never speak in public. Lord knows I don't speak in public. But here I was, you know, because I found I wanted to reach these people who didn't know Christ. And I would speak up, and I loved it. But then I said there was one thing. There was one thing that I hadn't surrendered to God. I said, Lord, I, I'm loving what I do. I love it, I love it, I love it. You know, I love serving you, but I'm just a perfusionist. Now, if any of you don't know what a perfusionist is, you can take a pic- look at the picture, and you're stuck in this cave, which is called the surgery. Day in and day out, you don't talk to anybody almost. Yeah, you, know, you talk to some people, but maybe not the best language. And, and you're, you're talking in surgery, and you don't really get a chance to visit with people. I said, Lord, what could I do? I'm just a perfusionist. This is all I have. I mean, I'm not a, a minister, a missionary. I'm just, I mean, who am I going to talk to in surgery about you, about what you've done for my life? And I gave him my job. I said, Lord, you can take my job. I give it to you. I don't care if I have to quit my job, if I have to, you know, take a job wherever it takes, but I want to be at the center of your will and I give you my job. The Lord started changing my life, and he got me a new job. Now, many of you know that, that are here, but for those who don't know here, I worked in surgery for almost 30 years, on and off. My friend Joe and I were here, worked almost 15 years together, you know, my colleague. And then I started doing something different called ECMO, where you work with the patients in the ICU. As a matter of fact, one of my other coworkers, Jim Coles, is here. I invited him today. We spent a lot of time together developing the program at Erlanger with kids. And we started working with, with people and families. And I really found a lot of joy instead of working in the operating room to work with people where they were hurting and be able to talk to people. And I really started connecting with people. I really started developing and sharing my faith and finding opportunities, which I didn't have before. Miraculously, God took me from working in, in, in a cave of operating room to working with human beings and individuals. My patients were, were sleep, They're like a factory belt, you know, just, just patients going by and you really didn't have a chance to connect with anybody. But now I was talking to people where I really wanted to. I had drank from Jesus as well, and now I wanted to share with others. And I wanted to find a way to share so as I was sharing, as I was sharing, I was finding real, real happiness. And I want to bring this a little bit to a close by sharing two stories. Two stories of how God can take you from being focused on other things. And they don't necessarily have to be bad things, because when the woman was drinking from that well, it wasn't necessarily bad water, but it was water that you would keep on coming back for time and time again, and you'd be thirsty. 
to now drinking of the water that you would never be thirsty again. And I wanted to share that water with others. And I had drank from that water. And so every time I met a patient, I prayed before I went out to California. I said, Lord, there's a divine appointment here. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go, like the opening song. The Lord had touched my life, like the Samaritan woman. I wanted to go and get other people and tell them about the Jesus who I met. So I met this one woman, and she was 53, well, I can't say it. She was my age. Now, this is not her picture. I'm going to let you know right now. I, I got this off the Internet. And a lot of these pictures are, 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 are not real pictures I'm going to show. You can get in trouble for that. And... Uh, but I want to I share that these people are people that are awaiting a heart and lung transplant. And they're people that you can talk to. And I spend 12 hours of my time next to them. I work at the busiest transplant hospital. I'm going to say one of the busiest so you can't pinpoint it. I'm going to get in trouble. I work at one of the busiest transplant hospitals in the country where there are a lot of patients waiting for months at a time on life support with garden hoses coming out of their body and their artificial heart and lungs are outside their bodies, and I'm the one taking care of them. And so when 24-7, I'm next to them. They can't get separated from that machine. It's the big heart-lung machine, it's smaller. And when they go to the bathroom, I have to hold them and go to the bathroom because those lines cannot separate from the patient. I become one with that patient for those 12 and a half hours there. And so what do you think I do during that time? I have really a chance to connect with them. And this one lady, let's call her Anne. Anne was a doctor. She was a female doctor who had been very, very successful in life. And she had a family. But uh, she was a unique patient because most patients, and these are my two stories. I've got, I got one more after this. This first patient, when you're a transplant patient, you have to be healthy enough to qualify for a lung or a heart. And so you have to be able to, your body has to be in good enough shape to receive a, a recipient's uh, lungs, for example. You have to be able to walk. And so we'd walk these patients maybe around this area here. And if you walked once or twice a day, okay, you were thumbs up good enough to receive a lung. Otherwise, you know, you're too sick to get a lung. We'll give it to somebody who's more viable, that's going to survive. But this lady, Anne, she was really educated. She had a doctorate. She says, I'm going to be the number one best recipient of a lung ever. And she would run around the most of the hospital for laps and laps and laps. I had never seen a patient do that before. She was the healthiest transplant candidate I had ever worked with. I was breaking a sweat, getting my exercise in, just keeping up with her. It had never happened in all my years of perfusion. And so she had been waiting there for a, a, a long time, waiting for the lungs, day in and day out, day in and day out. And I would try to connect with her, but she wouldn't, uh, you know, really give me a way in. You know, she was one of those ladies that just, just didn't want to go there, anything spiritual. But I knew my time was coming to an end. And I had worked with other patients that I had talked to, and miraculously, they had got a transplant after, after the prayer or something, you know? And I'm not saying that I did it, but somehow, you know, I said, I know somebody who can really help you. So I, I told her, he said, listen, Ann, I, I, I didn't know what to say because I knew I could get in trouble and get fired if I talked about God at the work. And there's a story in the Bible about a guy that was healed by Jesus, and Jesus told him, hey, don't tell anybody. To me, he's one of the greatest missionaries that ever existed because he, even though Jesus told him, hey, don't tell anybody, he went and told everybody because he had, Jesus had done so much for him, and Jesus had done so much for me that I wanted to tell her 
hey, you know, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me pray for you. And she, when I spoke to her that one time, she said, stop. I don't want to hear about Jesus. She says, I don't want your God to get the credit when I get my set of lungs. Lord, I, I wanted to share my water with her, but she stopped me. I went out and I said, oh, Lord. And within an hour, she developed a fever. She had been so healthy and she started having pain. And within 24 hours, she had a horrible infection. And they had to take her off the transplant list because of her horrible infection. Within days, she developed a brain bleed and she stroked out. Not too long after, they pulled the plug and she passed away. God had came to her door and offered her an opportunity, but she decided no. And you see, God comes to different types of people and we bring, we are like missionaries, like the original missionaries, that they go out and they share. And some people will listen, and that's not our job. And some won't. But I have another lady that miraculously happened to be two doors down, who was the same age. And, and, and I'm going to call her. Oh, I'm going to tell you first about, about one minute too early, but I'm going gonna, I, I, I'm gonna to tell you about Naaman. Naaman, he had a servant girl, and I'm going to get right to it. She says, I know somebody that can heal you. And I had this story in my heart. When I met this lady, this lady went talking, her name is, oh, I don't know, man. Let me give you a name. No, no, Muslim name. Yasima. All right, my wife said Yasima. All right. And when I met Yasima, she had suffered a horrible heart attack. A heart attack that was so bad that they put her on this life support. And they thought, oh, well, she's young, she looks healthy. But when they did all the extensive testing, they realized that the coronary arteries in her heart were so blocked that every artery in her heart was so blocked and the muscle was so dead that they couldn't do regular heart surgery, that she needed a transplant. And so she was on life support and she needed a transplant, a heart transplant like we do. And as she needed that heart transplant, her other organs started to fail. Because she said, when they did CPR on her for almost an hour when they first got her, she lost a lot of the functions of a lot of her organs and she had liver damage and kidney damage and she had a minor brain bleed. And the doctors told the family, I'll never forget this, the daughters, they were the age of my daughter, Christy. And there were two daughters that were like my kids and she was my age and her husband, Muhammad, was me. And I saw them there in that, in that room. And as she lay in that bed, this is not her picture, but similar. And as she laid in that bed, my heart bled for her. And I, after getting to know her, I knew she was not of our faith. She was a Muslim woman and she didn't really know the Jesus that I knew. I said, Lord, I felt like Naaman's little servant girl. I said, I'm just a perfusionist. I said, but I know Jesus. And so we met, the doctors met and they said, she's not a candidate for our heart transplant. In other words, that was it. They had to pull the plug. 
Because if she didn't get a heart, she had no heart. And her other organs were bad. She was going to die. And I knew it. And I knew. I could see it in the daughters. They were so faithful next to their mom and the husband, you know, praying to Allah. And all their family had come because the doctors said, she's going to die. And we're going to have to pull the plug. There's nothing else we can do. There's no other technology. She was hooked up to everything, CRT. My friend Jim Coles, he's an expert on that. You know, she was on that. She was on dialysis, heart-lung machine. Every known technology could not save her. But I knew somebody that could. I said, Lord, if I tell them what I really think, I've never ever told anybody what I really, really, really think. Because I'm going out on a limb for you, Lord. But Lord said, just tell them. Tell them about me, that I can heal them. I said, Lord, if I tell them what I did, you know, come on, come on. You can heal this lady. She's dead already. What am I going to say? So I, I couldn't stop. God had done so much for me in my life. I said, I wanted to introduce him to at least one time. Give him a chance. And so I met with Muhammad. As a matter of fact, before she died, they called in the Iman. And this is a real picture of him. I knew nobody would believe me in this story. And he came in, he had his prayers, and there were at least 30, 40 members of the Muslim faith outside the ICU doors waiting because they said, call the family in, she's going to die. And they met, they prayed, and I was there. I mean, I'm there. And I'm seeing the whole thing. I said, Lord, this can't happen. She's got to know Jesus. I said, if I don't say something, how should you ever know? And so I said, listen, I want to pray with you guys. But if you allow me to pray, I'm going to ask Jesus to heal her for you. I, I just couldn't believe those words came out of my mouth. I said, oh, I'm going to heal you to comfort you and give you peace. No, no, I, I just, it came out of my mouth. I couldn't believe I said it. And the, the Muslim guy looked at me. I never forget to look in his eyes like, you know. You must be crazy. But the daughter said, Maria, let's call her. She said, Daddy, what do we got to lose? She says, okay, okay, yeah, we, 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 got, we got the same God, you know. He's, uh, he's going to do the miracle, you know. I said, listen, the Lord inspired me. He said, we're not on the same page here. Jesus is going to heal her. And if Jesus heals her, I want to make sure that you tell everybody that it was Jesus. And from here on out, when the testimony of her being alive comes out to all your friends outside and everybody from now on she lives, it's Jesus that healed her. And you have to keep that pact that we make. The dad said, looked at me cross-eyed. And the daughter said, Dad, what do we got to lose? Let's go for it. You know, I had been so loving through him throughout the week. They said, okay, maybe, just maybe, this is all we have. And so we met in the corner of that room and we held hands and I prayed from the bottom of my heart. I'll never forget it. I prayed and I went out of the room and about an hour later, her heart rate that didn't have a heart rate really started beating again. And they couldn't believe it. She started developing a blood pressure over the life support equipment. And they took her and then they did a cath on her and they said, oh, she's got a, a 30, 40% ejection fraction, which she only had a 10%. Her heart's really beating now. You know, it used to be mashed potatoes. Now it's actually beating. And before you know it, they started disconnecting different equipment from her. And within days, she was out of the ICU. And within days, she was, she was healed. I went back to her room, and I saw her. And she had been out of it the whole time. But she said, and her family wasn't there, but her family said, 
She said, my family's told me a lot about you. And I want to thank you. So don't thank me, thank Jesus. But don't forget, we've made a deal that it's Jesus who's healed you. She got better and better and better. But about a week ago, I found out that she passed away. It had been months. We had made a deal, right? That it was Jesus who healed you and to never stop telling people it was Jesus. And he sustains every breath, every heartbeat. But we have two people who were confronted with the truth, with Jesus. How is it with you today when the gospel comes knocking on your door? You see, I wouldn't be here today unless a missionary gave up his American dream to come and to serve and to live the dream of God. I wouldn't be here. My family wouldn't be here. My kids, we would be lost just as much as a lot of these people that we've talked about and I've met. This is the Muslim family, you know? They're not really their family, but it is. I've chosen a closing song today that says a lot about, that's really always touched my heart. And it summarizes a little bit about uh, what I've talked about today. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes, empty people filled with care, headed to who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries, only Jesus hears. We are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be so great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief that they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. You see, we need the Lord, number one. We're trapped in the things of this world. And we really need the Lord. But if we keep on clinging on to the things of this world and not letting go and trusting God for that eternal water that will never be thirsty again, the people out there who need the Lord also will never hear the Lord. When we, I'm going to have Claudia sing this song. And I'm going to make an appeal that if maybe in your heart there are things in your life that maybe have crept in and are stealing your love away from God. Maybe today you want to dedicate yourself and you want to tell God you want to unlock the door of your heart and ask God to come into your heart and help you like he did me. I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'm going to think of the young people especially. I'm going to ask you to come forward. Thank you, Danny. I'm also going to invite those who maybe maybe know that they have a love but they've never tried Jesus Jesus won't ever take anything away without giving you something better and today you'd like to say Lord I know where my heart is is not there my heart is not fully dedicated to God but I want to give you I want to give you the right to come into my life and to give me a new heart. And as Claudia sings this song, I'm going to ask you to stand with me 
and dedicate your life and ask God to come in. And then I'm gonna have a special prayer with you. Let's listen to the words of this song as Claudia sings it. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care. Headed who knows where. On they go. Share. 
we uh, seek the Lord in prayer, will you kneel with me? Lord, we want to thank you for your presence. We want to thank you for the Holy Spirit's work. Lord, you know, you know the hearts beneath this exterior, Lord. You know, you know us. You know our struggles. You know the devil's on us. Lord, we need you. This sin thing has us trapped. It's tasty. Lord, save us. Lord, save us so that we can be who you would have us be. Help us set aside our dreams so we could live the life that you would have us live and other people could know the Lord. Lord, I want you to recognize those who have come forward and who have opened the door to their heart today. Lord, I want you to seal that decision with the Holy Spirit. As we know that as they walk out of this door, you're committed to do everything possible to save them. And you will work out events in their lives that you will, if they're willing, have a new heart, a heart that will find real satisfaction in you and in service to others. We thank you for this time that we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.